Hi, I'm Lexi Rios-Salas, and I am on the chopping block at visceralchange.org. Listen to what we do. I don't have anything to say. No, wait, wait. I'm nervous. Yeah. It's your easy listening station. Do that right now. <laughs> Why? You're listening to the chopping block. You're listening to the chopping block. You're listening to the chopping block. The one them on the Visceral Change Podcast. How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to season three this time of the chopping block. I am extremely excited. I'm here with my first guest of this season, Lexi Riles Salas. Lexi, how are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for asking. <laughs> Lexi is a labor organizer, among many other things, which we are going to get into in a second. And Lexi uses the pronouns she, her, they, them. And I use he, him. And thank you all again for joining us today on the chopping block. Really excited to kick off season three. And Lexi, I'm excited to kick it off with you in particular because we have some history. We go back a couple of years and uh, and working together um, and uh, sort of a mentor-mentee relationship and and just really growing together, really, in, in, in a sense, almost in a new space. Me coming from the East Coast to Tucson, you kind of coming more down South from, from Yuma area to, to Tucson. So I'm excited to dig in a little bit about what this journey might look like um, and things like that. But before we go in anywhere, how are you? How have you been? Um, how's it been since COVID? Uh, how, how are you doing? Yeah, um, I mean, it's a loaded question under COVID. Yeah, right, <laughs> um, yes. Right now, I'm taking a break from organizing, which has been very needed. So during COVID, I was organizing for the 2020 elections. Um, where I was also a union steward and doing that type of organizing. And then after the elections, uh, less than a month after, uh, I began organizing with the union on campus. So yes. doing lots of campaign work, lots of organizing. It's been very rewarding and also very exhausting. So I've just been catching up on reading now, catching up on Buffy the Vampire Slayer rewatch that I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> nice. My sister used to love that show. Uh, it's still my back. favorite. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah Michelle Geller? Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. Yes, indeed. Well, that's a good choice. I can't I can't knock you there. Uh, we got all the streaming services, so we kind of just run them back as well as as we can. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> all right, Lexi, let's jump right in. Um, you have a ton to offer. I'm really excited for my my guests to kind of hear or my audience to hear what my guests have to say and in particular what you have to bring to the table because it's really going to be enriching with the work that you do and the unique focuses that you have. So uh, let's start at the beginning-ish. Um, you identify as a person of color. Is this true? Uh, not quite. I, because, you know, I'm very like white passing and mm -hmm. all of whatever the privileges that come with that I I hesitate to identify myself as a person, as a person. of color sure. um some people identify me that way others will just acknowledge me as like a white Latina and that's totally fine so yeah I, I don't strongly identify as that but I also don't quite identify as white either so very much in the weird space that many multiracial people existed sure sure and i know i know a few folks who identify as sort of white passing or who show up white passing who mm -hmm. share a similar narrative um, um and and you know the complexities that come within recognizing that you you, you have an ex at least a lived experience to some degree 
or familial experience to some degree that might be POC, but maybe your lived experience or what you're out in the world being received as might be opposite. But you are for sure, at least you're a first generation college student, right? Yes. Uh, you, you're also, and you're also the reason why the POC pops up because you're a product of really an interracial relationship. Your, mm -hmm. your father is white, your mother is Mexican, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. Correct. Right. Um, so I guess my question for you, and you, you kind of touched a little bit about this complication that a lot of POC experience who might show up as white passing in particular. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about how has this confluence of identities, right? This, this, this biracial identity that you own um, shaped you to become who you are today? Yeah, so, I mean, it, it's hard to just narrow it down to just race because there are so many other... Share them all, share them all. <laughs> right, yeah. the, the, it's all of part of it. Right. Um, and through racial experiences, we often encounter class experiences as well, which is de definitely relevant to myself. Right. So uh, my father is white, Um my parents separated when I was, I think, nine or 10 years old, um, and I mostly lived with my mom, um, and she remarried. My stepfather is also Mexican, so they're both these working class Chicanos and very much proud to be Mexican, too. Um, so I grew up in that specific um, setting, So and in Yuma, Arizona, too, which there's also like a lot of other biracial people too. So even being biracial had a different meaning in Yuma than it did come to Tucson. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's because in Yuma, not only are there just a lot of Mexicans uh, and Latinos in general, but also there's a lot of other um, students who I went to school with who also had a white parent and Mexican parent. And sure. Sure. You know, so we always just kind of fit into both groups. We would have like our Mexican friend groups and then our white friend groups are just all together. Right. Um, and I, I would say too, like being in that working class household as well. So like my stepfather, he does custodial and groundskeeping work. And so he would always tell me about the things he was experiencing, how the Mexican women and himself, they were always treated very differently uh, by their white bosses. Who expected them to do all this work right and like even my mom she does secretary work and even the performance that women of color have to put on in professional settings to always right. look their best um, my mom wore high heels every single day and like now her knees are really messed up sure, sure. Um, and also she had her white bosses who would talk down to her at times remember one time she told me that her white boss grabbed her by her arm and was like you better not no. do that again and, you know like these experiences that were so normalized in ways that were just um i mean traumatic for sure but again normalized so then right. it's trauma that's stored that you don't know how to really cope with right uh, so those were some of my experiences growing up. And then when I began working, uh, my first job ever was as a hostess and it was the first brewery in Yuma. Oh. Um, and I was very young, I had just turned 17 and then having all of these like strange, creepy drunk men hitting on me. Oh it's like, I would be like, I'm literally in high school and right. it didn't matter and then I remember one time, like I was crying because I was just so freaked out. Right. And my manager like laughed. And it was like, oh, laughed. whatever, it's normal. Wow. Yeah, like just laughed at it. Um, and then, you know, really, you know, the other servers, they 
they were somewhat comforting, but it was just, again, so normalized. I was like, yeah, like this is the standard in the industry. And this is what it's like in food service. This is what right. it's like working as a young woman. So deal with it. Right, exactly. Yeah. So uh, yeah, a lot of my experiences, even with work, uh, either through myself or proximity to my family, was very much rooted in um, violence against workers, sure. uh, and specifically women. It was sexual harassment, and it's again so normalized. Uh, once I came to college, so in the first my family would go to college. Um, you know, I was the kid that filled out FAFSA for my parents because they had no idea what it was. Right. Uh, and you're not supposed to do that, but I think every first generation student fills out their own FAFSA. <laughs> right. I could imagine. Uh, and then has to somehow become an expert in in taxes at 17 years old just to fill it out. Uh, So my first work experience in college was I worked uh, at this place called Cactus Grill in the student union. So I was a busser first semester. Second semester, I I made wraps and still did busing. But the very interesting thing was when I came to college, I was very thrown off by how white the campus was how white my dorm was oh. and I remember thinking like I mean I like blend in but I felt very out of place still I felt out of my element in many ways and I remember calling my mom and saying, like mom it there's so many white people here like I don't know where all the Mexicans are like there's Mexicans in Tucson where are they on campus right right, um, right. and she's like well you're you're at college what do you expect like right. that, that's normal colleges for white people like that type of yeah yeah um, narrative that we're interesting to. uh but when I went to work that's where all the Mexican students were so I was working with students um you know, who were flipping burgers mm-hmm. behind this grill that like, ugh, that grill was miserable. I hated ugh. that grill. I refused to learn how to do grill. Walks, I even learned sushi, but I refused to learn how to, to do get the grill. grill. Yeah. Right. Um, but that's where there were students from San Luis, uh, from Nogales, from Douglas, from Yuma. So like we all somehow got lumped into this one space on this big campus. So we were there as the workers serving all these students who were often disrespectful, Mm -hmm. um, didn't even acknowledge our existence, right? And also being paid minimum wage, which at the time was, I believe, it might have still been under $8 at the time. I know eventually it went up to $8.05. so for a lot of these students too, this was how they survived. Right. Um, you know, yeah. we, our parents were not able to send us money every month. Um, a lot of students had to pay for their own rent, for their own groceries, for all of these things. So trying to really balance the academic life with this working life that is not very typical of uh, how students are portrayed. That's not the undergrad experience that right. you see in the movies that you right. hear about. Um, it's always like the partying and like drugs and got to mm-hmm. take your Adderall and just do all your essays at once. And that was not at all <laughs> our experience, right? Um, it was complete this eight hour shift to go home tired and you have to do your writing because you right. have to finish school. Cause if you don't, you're going to end up stuck in this job. Right, right. And, and, you know, as you add on layer after layer in terms of identities as well, that also adds to your experience in terms of, you know, what you're already shouldering as you come into the conversation. You know, uh, Lewis Mole, 
it theorizes this idea of 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 um, you know funds of knowledge you know mm -hmm. and sort of we're all coming to this experience any experience really already equipped with the level of of, of knowledge based on our right circumstances mm -hmm. and sometimes that is positive for what's in front of us sometimes that can serve as a, as a negative not as a result of you but because of what society is additionally throwing right. at you so Yuma, you said had a, a lot of Chicano uh, folks and uh, Latinx folks already yeah. already present. I, I would yeah. So I would make more of a clarification. It might be different now. I, I don't visit Yuma very often anymore, but a lot of people didn't necessarily identify as a Chicano because that is very much a political identity. Mm -hmm. It was more of just Mexican, Hispanic. Okay. and whatnot it's so like okay. those were usually the identities because yuma is a very conservative town Got um, it. i mean there's this major military base there uh there's huge border patrol presence as well so people sure. also get indoctrinated into joining border patrol and you know having these conservative worldviews too sure. so my household though in particular and because my stepdad's from uh east la um or his family's from east la and he's from around la but like he had that Chicano identity. Um, so we were like very much like proud to be Mexican proud. type, you know? <laughs> yep, no, I, I I understand that at least from the perspective of being black. I joke with people all the time. I tell folks, I didn't know Santa was white till I got to school. <laughs> we, <laughs> we had the black Santa and the black Mrs. Claus and, you know, even the nativity mm -hmm. scene was all black coming up in the house. So, right, there's something to be said about that pride. And then, of course, the shock value that happens later on in life mm -hmm. when you enter college. And I want to I want to talk a little bit about that and, and feel free to tie in sort of that sort of the racialized experience. But I did want to curb slightly a little bit in, mm -hmm. into gender, if, if you if you'll allow me. Yeah. Um, I, I, I want you to talk to us a little bit about what might be seen as a, a journey to self-discovery, which is, is is loose because we're always journeying and, and, and who we are right. and working through. But I, I I draw on that in particular because, and I said this to you before, um, I, yeah, I remember when I first met you and this is this is 2016, I wanna say, uh, and we were doing yeah. sort of the act, <laughs> I believe at the time. And I think I, I'm pretty sure I've said this to you before, but I remember clear as day and it stands out more so now because of how I've been able to watch you journey. We were doing our fun facts and mine at the time was that, you know, I had lived, I think, in like three different states in like a matter of 12 months at that point in time. And yours was that you you got to snag an internship at the then WRC, Women's Resource mm -hmm. Center. Um, and that was such at that point in time, like a, a moment of excitement for you and and, right. and dare I say pride by the way you delivered it. Um, and I would say within within the year, 12 months down the road, your your position shifted towards the LGBTQ center and, mm -hmm. and, and queer identity and sexuality became a little bit more prominent in your in your rhetoric, right? And your even in your disposition. Mm -hmm. Talk to us a little bit about that journey of, of, of discovery, of, of understanding who you are and, and maybe where you want to go um, and, and what that was like for you and, and at the university level in particular. Yeah, so I had always identified as a feminist, I think as from the first time I heard that word and I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm, being a woman sucks. You know, I don't want to be a girl. Um, <laughs> And, and that was definitely a more popular, even though 
I mean, feminism is more accepted now, but back then it was much more contentious, right? It was like, oh, you got hairy armpits and you hate men and feminazi, right? right? All this language being used uh, to antagonize feminism. But I, my experiences just growing up as a child was very much through gender. So my brother, um, we have the same mom, but different dads and my brother's older, but very, very much like the, the epitome of machismo. So he was always mean to me, always putting down girls, always just like picking on me, right? Always pointing things at my gender, saying girls are weak, whatever it was. And borderline abusive too. Mm. Um, and also just my experiences with my own dad and the way that he treated women. Um, and I don't need to get into that, but there were just a lot of these negative experiences of being a young girl. And then also, you know, when you come into puberty being told like, you need to be careful, um, don't get pregnant. Like that was constantly what I was told, especially by my mom, because Mm. my mom got pregnant at a young age. So and I knew mother's high teenage pregnancy rates too. Sure. So it was always very important as like a young Mexican girl that you behave, that you don't have sex, you know, you don't have boyfriends, whatever. It was very controlling. Um, and I saw feminism as like this liberating thing of, I don't see men being treated this way. So like, why am I? Why are we not talking about the boys getting the girls pregnant? Why are we not talking about men who are being violent to women? Why are right, women right. being blamed for it? So I always was a feminist, but I didn't have any space besides maybe online on, on Tumblr to really explore what feminism meant because sure. again, Yuma was very conservative. Um, so one of the first things I did when I was preparing to go to the U of A was I looked up feminism, University of Arizona, and then I saw the Women's Resource Center come up. I saw the internship force. I saw all the cool things they were doing. I was like, oh my God, this thing exists. There are other people, right? So that was so exciting. And uh, I remember even in high school, um, we had watched this movie. It was total first wave feminism things. It was uh, called it was iron jawed angels um you know it was like the suffrage the suffrage movement whatever but I remember watching it and it was the first time I had seen a movie about women leading something and like that being their livelihood mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure if I was to watch it now I'd probably hate it <laughs> <laughs> but I remember I was like oh my god like they were like professional feminists I want to do that but I can't that, there's no job right like you you can't live on being a feminist um or so i thought right um, <laughs> so then this internship was like this amazing thing to me um and my freshman year of college too i was actually a pre-business major oh. <laughs> because i didn't know anything about college i knew i liked working on projects i wanted to do some kind of project management thing mm-hmm. and everyone's like you gotta get a degree that you could get hired for and make good money like that's why you go to college and as a first generation student there's more pressure to be able to get your degree and start making money and break out break out of those cycles of poverty and low income um, so i was a pre-business major and i hated it um, there were times in those classes where there were maybe six women in the class and then like 20 something men. Um, the demographics looked worse when we talk about race. Right, right. <laughs> I remember 
I was in, you know, whatever leadership things for pre-business and all these clubs because I was trying to boost my resume because I did not have the business connects that all the other students had. Right. And we were all in this class together. And I remember they brought in the LGBTQ panel, which some of them were my friends. I remember I had dinner with them after. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I remembered just listening to these things. So for more context, in Yuma, feminism was like not talked about. LGBTQ identity most definitely was not talked about. Um, There was even homophobia even within my family. You said it's Uh, a very conservative space. So very conservative, right. Uh, So like I never really explored LGBTQ identity, but I always was like a very strong ally. And whenever my dad would say something homophobic or transphobic, I would like cry and be like, I'm just, I'm so hurt because I just really support them, you know, and not understanding how personal it was. But um, when we were in the class, there's all the business, pre-business majors, all freshmen, first semester, we had this LGBTQ panel and afterwards we did this debrief and I remember this one white guy in the class that said you know I've never talked to a gay person before right right yeah (laughs) and like and I was just like uh what (laughs) which is totally false because there's gay people all around us we don't know (laughs) um and it was just I remember just feeling so like my skin was crawling because the questions people were asking or how nice they were or how nice they appeared to be in the panel. And then once the panel left, like the things that they would say um, of like, I just, you know, I understand gay, but I just can't get behind the whole transsexual thing. I just don't understand. Um, And in this class, we also, as an assignment had to do a debate and we didn't get to choose which side we were on. We didn't mm-hmm. choose the topic. And I had to debate against trans people playing in the sports league with like the gender they identify as. So like I was forced to do this project or fail. Um, and that was just really hard. And I just remember thinking like, none of these people are respectful. None of these people in this college, like they're not my colleagues. They're not who I wanna be around. I don't agree with any of these things they're talking about. I don't care about profit. Like that's all they care about, just making money. And there are these bigger issues that I actually care about. Right. Um, so right. then my second semester, I was an intern. I had the feminist internship, um, dropped my pre-business things. But then the rest of my schooling, I was in public management and policy, which had its own issues too, because a lot of that college is, um, a bunch of professors who used to be cops. So <laughs> that had its sure. own issues. Sure. Um, moving from one set of problematic people to another, right. but I enjoyed it more. I was able to at least during policy studies incorporate a feminist analysis, um, which I was not able to do in pre-business. No, for sure. Thank you. And thank you for sharing that. I'm not even quite sure if I knew that, that you were pre-business early on. So that's it's good to know because it, it, you know, that, and you, you talked about some of the elements that you'll find there that maybe you won't find in other disciplines. And, you know, just and going through my own legal experiences and, you know, in legal scholarship and in the law school, you know, there, the debate is an, is a standard approach. I think it needs to be, it needs to be measured in a particular way. Um, of, of course, if you're, 
sort of forced, if you will, to take a position that in which you don't agree. Uh, you know, folks who know you know better than that. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if the goal oftentimes is to frame it such as, um, so you can have an understanding of what the opposition might say. Now, again, in the, in the field like law, that makes sense because you're trying to, if you're defending somebody, you wanna know what you know the prosecutor or, or if you're mm-hmm. supporting somebody, you wanna know what the defense is gonna say in, in response. But I'm, I'm trying to figure out where that has space in business per se, um, as yeah. you're talking about it. <laughs> yeah, the, the class was, um, the, the weird thing too, it was MIS, so Management Information Systems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was, what was it? I don't remember, it was a long title, but it was yeah. supposed to, the whole point of the class was to be able to, um, in the business world, you're gonna interact with all kinds of different people. So you have to understand where they're coming from, whatever it was. So we would have weeks where we talked about like Asian American issues and whatnot, but it it was done in this really weird way. Right, right. Um, and for a lot of the students who were there it came from super privileged backgrounds, like not privileged, just white, but like they came from money and right. were just, bewildered by right. like poor people existing um and then you're like That's, well how did they, do they know that there's a poor person in their class right now right right uh, right so yeah it was just a, not only an unwelcoming environment but it just didn't even feel like a challenging like uh, what's the word I'm looking for um it didn't feel challenging in a productive way right got um, it yeah. And even in when I was doing these like business, whatever, like competition, small things, I remember being with my groups and they just didn't know how to work was the thing. Um, so they would, groups. they would always have, my mom does real estate in San Francisco. Uh, my dad owns this business here. He's a shareholder and, blah, 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 blah. and they would always talk about their parents. Right. And it was this really relying on nepotism in a lot of ways sure. but then when it came to doing a group project they didn't know how to work they didn't know and how to ethic. even think yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of like how do we create ideas like how do we think about these things entitlement um essentially so, you know right um so that I, I really hated everyone there i've been in my door my uh i was in the living learning community for the eller college hated everyone just could not stand it. it so I was like really in the space and I just could not stand it um I even had my door vandalized so people also didn't wow. like me either uh yeah and in that same dorm uh one of the RAs who I was friends with who was queer non-binary um their door like someone tried to burn down their door so wow. it was just created there was just these very hostile living environments um specifically in the dorms but even outside of the dorms so right. uh, my sophomore year I moved into an apartment it was student oriented random roommates um and because the U of A is a predominantly white institution I later learned that that means that if you are looking for housing that's going to be catering to students we're likely also going to be roommates with white students mm-hmm. um some some white students were pretty cool like not try to say that's immediately a bad thing but i remember it was 2016 um so i lived there 2016 2017 and that was during the elections 
and yes. I had this white roommate, you probably remember Sherard, I would always vent to you about her, <laughs> um, who voted for Trump. It was so proud of it. And she would just say all of these like racial, like, oh, she just was so weird. She would just make all these racial comments. She would just say this. things that were racist. If you told her, she'd start crying, of course. Yes. Um, so it just made not only the campus was difficult to navigate at times, but even your living situation was difficult because yeah. who are the students who are likely to use student housing? Right. <laughs> so. Well, I don't think I realized that that was on campus. I thought you were you were off at that point in time, but I do remember that. Um, wow. And I'm actually glad you, you kind of segue to housing-ish and the university, because that's kind of where I want to go next um, with my question. Um, and, you know, as, as you shared, as I shared earlier, you know, we, we know each other. We go back a few years at this point um, and we came to each other again, more of a working, working formation. Um, and we worked in housing for a few years and under different umbrellas, if you will. Um, and although, you know, you were a student at the time, I want to be clear to everybody and make no mistake about it. You know, Lexi's always been about business, has always been big league, you know, for sure. Um, and there's, there's, there's no secret there. So I, I want to step back a little bit. And I know you have U of A as experience, so you feel free to draw on your experience at Arizona. But also, you know, if you have colleagues and friends in other places, I want you to talk about um, the idea of housing and residential life as an entity. Mm-hmm. And I want you to tell me if you think uh, you know, its role in college and university is, is being served well. Um, you talked a little bit about your experience in an LLC. Um, are there things that housing is missing in general? And, and, and give me your thoughts as a student and slash employee as someone who worked for them. Yeah, um, so for more background information too. So Sherard and I, we worked with Equity and Student Engagement, which yes. was supposed to be the Social Justice Resource Center. <laughs> right, the right. legislature was not a fan of that, <laughs> uh, right? So all of these politics happened even before we were able to launch. Right, um, yes, good memory. And <laughs> so we worked with that together. So I was doing more of the, the social justice programming um, but not calling it social justice, the <laughs> educational programming pieces in the dorms. Right. Uh, but I, I also, with housing, um, I was not a desk assistant. I worked as a conference assistant, guest assistant during right. the summers and housekeeping. Right. So during the summers, I worked in the dorms um, behind the desk. I helped fold linen and make beds and all that good stuff. So I also had that background. So I was very embedded in housing residential life mm-hmm. without being an RA or DA, um, right. resident assistant or desk assistant. Right. Um, I think in order for us to take a look at the role of housing residential life, we have to also look at what is the role of the university. Yeah, so yeah. since the 60s, we've seen the privatization of public institutions and colleges becoming less and less accessible, tuition rising, right? The state divesting from public education as well to then adopting really this for-profit model. So even a public institution such as the University of Arizona is very much profit-driven. We can look at the capital investments. We can look at how they buy out property and are a major source of gentrification even here in Tucson, right? So 
if we take a look at how is the university operating, we know it is through profits. Um, and through profit, there must always be exploitation because you can't profit at a large scale like that without exploiting people. Sure. Um, in housing and residential life, we saw high turnovers of lots of staff, particularly staff of color yes, and career did. staff. Um, a lot of resident assistants were being underpaid, but then oftentimes we're told to be grateful because they received free housing. Um, <laughs> but then if you lose your job as an RA, you're screwed because you have no actual income to spend. <laughs> um, so the, there's exploitation all around. Uh, and even just within the dorms, these toxic environments, not all of it is the fault, of course, of housing. It's because when you have students coming to campus for the first time who have no idea what a queer person is, right? don't understand identity, don't understand politics really and power dynamics, don't understand their own upbringings in a lot of ways and cultural differences, there's bound to be conflict. But additionally, there's also students who come in with these very conservative views who are racist, who are sexist and homophobic, sure. who sure. do uh, sexually assault women in the dorms, right? So we also have this too. Um, so there's bound to be conflict. Whenever right. you have big groups of people who come from very different places um, and taking on this new experience for the first time, which is college, yep. there's bound to be conflict. Um, I think with housing residential life, specifically at the university, um, I can't speak for it nationwide, we also have to see that it is an auxiliary, which means it produces its own profit. So yes. there's also this incentive to profit. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, yep. That means if that if that means we have to hush hush with assaults, right? We have to hush hush about all these bad things happening because we want to keep this good image, then so be it. Line. Yeah. Because we want to make sure that every room is filled, that every right. bed is filled. Yes. And we're going to keep raising the price, right? Making it more and more unaffordable because not only does tuition rise, um, but the cost of the dorms also rise, even right. if the quality has not changed. Right. So there's also this layer of inaccessibility just to working class students. And at the U of uh, A, we're talking about, if I remember, at least at the time, about 7,000 or so people living in the, in the yeah. world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there were tier systems for the dorms. So there was the lower tiers, which right. did not have the right. same amount of amenities that the higher right. tiers did. So completely different living experiences on top of it. And visually, um, you could see the difference. And that's the case for most institutions as well. I mean, visually, you know mm -hmm. where the, oh, yeah. right, where the support is. Yeah, and, and during the summers, I would work behind the desks. I, I think almost every dorm and even the desks themselves, very different. The amenities people right. were able to check out, <laughs> yep. very different. Yep. Um, so there, there's also just this major class difference that the dorms perpetuate. Um, for our work in particular, uh, I got to have a much deeper look at what the residents all across were coming from, or specifically the resident assistants. Um, so if you remember, Sherard, we would try to get into the RA meetings, which a lot of housing oh, yes. residential life, they love to talk about social justice as a pillar, but then did not like to support the work that was being done. Uh, so we would try really hard to get into RA meetings. Some community directors were really welcome and really supportive. Others pretended we didn't exist. 
Uh, (laughs) one activity we would do is we would have the RAs, you know, in a circle, go around, we would say, introduce yourself, name pronouns, um, whatever else you want to throw out, and tell us which identity do you, of yours, do you think about the most, and which one do you think about the least? Yes. Most women, especially white women, would say gender is the first one they thought about. Sure. The last one, which one do you think about the least people would often stumble on, Mm -hmm. take some time to think about, some people would say class. Um, Class was rarely brought up, which was also weird unless a student like came from not having any money, then they would say class. Um, And then a lot of the white people would say race was something they didn't think about that much. You know, and the purpose of this was to then, you know, acknowledge that the way that we approach things in life can very much be dependent on these things or the way that we receive information to be filtered through our identities, right? Um, But I'll never forget this one RA. It was in a dorm that was um, a higher tier, so it was very nice. This RA was a white man, um, which there's a lot more women who apply for the RA position than men. So like, it's much easier to become an RA as a man. So there was like a lot of terrible white men who were RAs, if I'm being quite honest. But this one in particular, and we had one of our other peer advisors with us who's an international student. So I was ready to throw down, but I didn't. Um, But he had said, the identity he thinks about most is being an American. And the one he thinks about the least is he thinks about other people if they are American or not. Wow. And then he just said it in like this, such this like, like his teeth were like clenched. And it was like, oh my God, who, who is this nationalist? Wow. Who are his residents? Does he have international students living there? Does he help care for them if they need help? Does he ignore them if they're not American? Like it was wow. just, it was so wild to hear that come from a resident assistant yeah. in this big dorm where there are most definitely international students um and yeah it was just there were things like that that would be said people sharing their honest opinions thinking they're not racist but then like saying racist things um i also did safe zone trainings um through the lgbtq resource center so i had trained a group of ras and I remember one of the RAs in their um, reflection wrote, I am not your ally. I do not care about LGBTQ issues. You do your thing, but do not expect me to show up for you. When the and RAs like, wrote reading that? that as a queer person, I was just like, oh my goodness. Like, do they have queer residents who are like going through hard times and they're not going to help them? So, wow. It was just, yeah. One of the, one really, of the RAs wrote that. Yes, one of the wow. RAs wrote that, who's another white man. Sure. Wow. <laughs> um, so, so being able to like really engage with the RAs in this way really told me that institutionally, even though housing residential life claims that social justice was a value, right? They, they did these trainings. It was not something, it was not a value that they really held true and that they held as a standard. Right. Um, because right. again, what they really cared about was building their profit, which meant that they hired RAs who did not need the money, who were not going to complain, 
who just put up with being an RA and like, no, this is great. Why are you complaining? Right. Because then that meant they didn't have to give more money to RAs. They didn't have to give more money to desk assistants. They didn't have to give more money to community directors who were overseeing two or three dorms, but not being paid for it. Right. So we saw exploitation throughout and the people who dared called it out were often the ones who maybe a year later were gone. And that is right. The, the message I shared, I, I'm, I love the fact that you ended it that way, right? Because a message I share with a lot of folks I work with about social justice is I remind them that social justice in many ways is a, is a cost benefit analysis, um, right? It's this idea of what's, what's the risk if I do speak up and advocate or what's the reward? And, and you're weighing this against what the consequence might be. Mm -hmm. Because you and I both know from personal experience, from, uh, you know, uh, peripheral experience, whatever the case is, that if you decide to speak out on behalf of something social justice oriented, that best case scenario, you have someone supporting you. Mm -hmm. and, and mild case scenario, which is actually probably more frequent, it's a, hey, thank you so much for your, your time here. We're going to actually put you on this committee, you know, we think you serve, mm -hmm. you might be better served here, right? Kind of get you away from right. what we're trying to do because we want to push this through. Meanwhile, folks like you, myself, like we have all this excess money, but this building still isn't ADA compliant. And why don't we put it there? Well, why don't we think about, one thing I remember we tried to talk about a little bit is uh, how can we consider like grants or additional monies for some of these LLCs like the Black Wing, for example, or mm -hmm. our LLC, the Social Justice Wing, uh, for students who couldn't otherwise live there on their own with the means that they're bringing in. And that that kind of stalled out, right? For various reasons, as we know, and we may or may not get into today in our in our conversation, but right, the, as, as we began to slow down, no fault of our own, so did the commitment to the work. Which, which leads me to another question. You're segueing beautifully, which I appreciate. <laughs> um, you worked with, with me and ASE and Equity and Student Engagement uh, you worked in the LGBTQ Resource Center, and let the record stand that you were also a, a recipient of the Inclusive Excellence Award for like Student of the Year. Honorable which, mention. Uh, was it honorable? It was honorable mention. Oh yeah. Uh, I remember you went up and got the award. I, I so, have I have an actual award. You have it. I remember uh, I was there. I was yeah. there for it. So yeah. all right, okay. In my mind, in my mind, you got it. But okay, honorable. I remember you being there for the award. Etc. And I remember your 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 fight back speech that you, that you gave yeah. at the same time. Oh my, yeah, I sat down <laughs> and I cried a little. I was so angry. It was also the 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 I'll I'll say Dave. The award was named after Peter Likens, who was this white man who went up and talked about how him doing diversity work in a room full of black women meant that he was the minority in the space, so he understood. And then he like tried to like wrap his arm around me in the picture and I just like went to the side. I was just, I was so bad. <laughs> wow, listen, if you haven't yeah. learned yet, folks, if you if you ever say something around Lexi, make sure you back it up because she doesn't forget. I'm, I'm like, wow, I forgot all about some of these things, some of oh, the nuances. Yeah. I remember how people make me feel. <laughs> well, good, I, 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 that's good. Uh, and it's important. James Baldwin, in terms of blackness, used to say when people asked him, you know, why do black people travel in groups? And he would always say, because we need witnesses, right? Because uh, certain identities, um, it's just, you know, one's word isn't enough, right? And you need, you need witnesses. And so um, it's important that you hold on to things that matter to you, especially the things that make you feel. You talked about 
your work uh, in ESE and LGBTQ Resource Center and the state of affairs with diversity and inclusion. I wanna double back on that and, and, and ask you what your thoughts were or are on DEI as a whole at the University of Arizona or in yeah. colleges and universities in general. Are we seeing progress? Um, uh, one of the critiques I've always offered is that some of these institutions do a good job of putting uh, gatekeepers in place. Right? Mm -hmm. Folks that will just crack the door job but have no intention on actually doing the work. One of my dissertation uh, topics before I landed on what I landed on was going to be called as good until it works, right? The diversity officer or diversity office. Right. Um, so what are your thoughts on either the U of A's, DEI in general, or just college mm -hmm. universities in the role of it? Yeah. So, I mean, during undergrad, I was in the thick of it. I was involved in as many of these initiatives as I could be as a student. Um, but one thing I always struggled with was that a lot of the times the institution, so in this case, the university relies on students leaving. Um, so whatever progress would be done, because students do a lot of activism. And if we look at social movements in the past, a lot of this through college students. Um, but these institutions often rely on students leaving in you know, one to two years, graduating or dropping out, and then being able to go back to what they were doing before. So a lot of progress that we perceive as being progress is actually just us regaining things we had already lost. Um, and that is what I witnessed um, as a student at the university. And even when I was doing labor organizing with the university's labor union. Um, one thing I also struggle with with DEI is that unless you're also examining critically the ways that the university functions. So I'm talking specifically under this neoliberal model that has been adopted. So we're functioning under capitalism, slowly privatizing, really valuing profit over everything, right? And we see more resources going into, excuse me, um, more resources going into, let's say the STEM fields, for example, right? Because there's more money there. Correct. Then, when we are putting more people of color, more queer people, more disabled people in these places, are we really changing the conditions that brought us here to begin with? Right. So if we put a black woman in charge, but she is doing the gatekeeping, as you said, are we making progress? Because right. if the system Good, yeah. is to blame, then diversifying the system, but then the system still operating just yes. now with more faces of color is not really changing anything. And I think a lot of times too, DEI offices are established as a result of intense backlash from students, faculty, staff, Correct. right? Um, of marginalized identities. Correct. So it's also done in this not genuine way. It's here, we have this stop complaining, get to work. You, if you want changes, you need to fix it here you go. Yes. Um, and then resources are taken out of there, right? There's not the resources to actually implement things. There's also not the commitment to really make a change because to change how the university functions, to better the conditions of marginalized people means to change the entire structure. And that means threatening the profits, threatening the positions of power, right. Right. Um, throwing this level of exploitation out of balance, right? So DEI is good 
when it targets systemically and is able to do that and is able to sustain itself. But oftentimes this work is not sustained. And as I mentioned before, a lot of the people who speak out about particular issues and try to fight things and draw people to their side end up leaving in a year or two because they were pushed out, because they were burned out, because of whatever happened. Um, and then we just get stuck in the cycle of waiting for another person or people to come up and challenge the system again, make a little bit of progress and then get kicked out and then get back into this vicious cycle. Right. And, you know, your analysis is spot on, not that you need me to affirm that. It just reminds me of right, my research being in organizational behavior and design. <clears throat> and that's exactly it. Same, this sort of same design, same behavior, equal same outcome. Right? Same behavior, same design, equal same outcome across the board. Change behavior, change design, equals change outcome. And so essentially, right, if, if if you ask me, Sharad, we want to change our hiring processes to be more inclusive. And I say, okay, great. Let's start with examining our own biases, what we're bringing to the table that's actually hindering us from looking at an applicant as a person. Mm -hmm. And we go through that, but you continue to use the same process that has prohibited you to begin with, you're not gonna have mm -hmm. any change, right? And mm -hmm. so as you're saying, doing diversity or, or, or addressing representation at the highest level, let's say as an AVP or the, or the chief diversity officer, mm -hmm only to place them as a gatekeeper actually does not effectively make any change because you mm -hmm. haven't done anything to the system as you, as you eloquently said. And I think that needs to be, to be heard and, and stated loudly because um, you know, there are folks in various entities, whether it's a, a corporate business or institution of higher education or just a college within this university mm -hmm. that are struggling, I think, with understanding the role that processes play right, and systems play mm -hmm. in the larger discussion. And my follow-up to this question, you're, you're guiding us there as well, is about DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, or any variation of that. We hear Jedi sometimes, we hear idea. Um, as a sort of a broad overtone though, of let's, let's talk about these largely. And I appreciate that in terms of, of catching it foundationally. My question to you, Lexi, is, is DEI the right approach to these conversations that are really hindering us or should it be more focused like explicitly naming it racial justice or capitalism or imperialism what's a better approach to kind of address the system as you're talking about it yeah i think the latter is spot on in what i believe i think if we're talking about the different experiences of students of color, for example, I'm just gonna to stick to students for this example. Sure. And we're talking about students of color experiencing this and this and this, and then DEI often responds with just representation, right? Like it is great for talking about representation. Um, and that is also what the institution will cherry pick of like representation, let's focus on that, we'll hire another person of color, easy. Um, but then it doesn't address the material conditions people are facing. So students of color are saying, we're hungry. We are not eating three meals a day. We're not eating breakfast. We are hungry. We are overworked. We are getting evicted. All of these things are happening to us because this institution keeps trying to push us out. Mm -hmm. DEI and the way that the institution allows it to function 
does not actually target why those conditions exist. Um, Because in order to change those conditions, again, needs to change the entire university structure. And the university is not going to allow a diversity office to change its entire um, paradigm, right? And I think, you know, again, with the imperialism piece too, I look at the University of Arizona specifically with its relations to Raytheon, that again, it's focused on STEM um, as a research one institution, Mm -hmm. its relationships, and even with the Arizona Board of Regents, how much they really platform Raytheon and send a lot of resources there, receive resources, right? They have this very tight connection. And also the university building programs overseas too. Um, Also putting higher fees on international students or forcing international students to have health insurance through the university that does not include vision and dental, right? So seeing all of these exchanges as very much commodified, right? Seeing students as commodities, um, prioritizing, this imperialist war efforts, right, um, to then bomb Afghanistan or wherever, the, the weapons being developed, uh, technologies being developed by Raytheon, just for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we were to actually take an anti-racist, anti-imperialist uh, view or strategy within DEI, that would just be antithetical to how the university operates overall. Um, that means the university would not be profiting from Raytheon or recruiting students to then send there, right? Because the university wants to make money. It wants to be recognized as this top institution and wants to win all these grants. If you look at the university budget, most of the, like a majority of the income or the budget does not come from scholarships. It's from grants and private contracts. And that's been trying to, to increase with the grants and contracts. So then again, pressuring different departments and you get these grants. And that means that you have to put in more work, you have to produce more, which means there's more exploitation, right? So it's all this vicious cycle happening at every step of the way of the university. Um, If you're an adjunct faculty, right? You're you're being underpaid, you're being overworked, um, you have precarity in your job, but then if you speak out, you can risk your job, right? So then it's also, building these systems to disincentivize people to speak out. So DEI, oftentimes if people have an issue, they try to, you know, maybe talk to DEI, but DEI doesn't have the power often to actually change things as they are. Because again, it's antithetical to how the university operates. It's not just the University of Arizona. We see that throughout the country. through the neoliberal project, how universities have been incorporated into that, how it's directly tied with state legislatures. Um, Governor Ducey is a great example too, of just (laughs) (laughs) defunding education, increasing tuition, right? Meaning that only a certain type of student can actually go to the university and finish with their degree. Um, So DEI, again, oftentimes focuses on the representation piece because that's an easy fix for the university. But if DEI wants to truly change things, that's where you see DEI officers being replaced, less funding, right? All of these changes happening to then really challenge um, 
the institutional or a piece of the institution that is supposed to help people, but oftentimes struggles on its own or fights to just keep itself afloat. And how do you advocate for others when your own department is struggling and you have to advocate for yourself? Right, right. And so it almost seems fair to say or to assume that right, institutions by and large, even those that are committed rhetorically to diversity, equity, and inclusion, actually do not have an agenda to necessarily to commit to diversity, equity, and inclusion exactly. in a practical way. Yeah. Right. We'll yeah. see that. Um, I feel like it's almost every year the University of Arizona will put out at the beginning of the school year that this incoming freshman class is more diverse than ever, but then does not share what the retention rates were. What was what does their graduating class look like? So the university doesn't care about retaining students and making sure that these students actually succeed. They care about just getting them in so that they can have this image of like, we care about students of color. We have this indigenous woman on our pamphlet here, which means that we totally care about native people. Right, right, <laughs> right. right. Um, on the front end, front end it stuff. Is, it's more, it's the performance of it mm -hmm. rather than changing the lived realities that people experience. Right, right. Sort of, as they say in law, prima facie, right? on first face, this, this sort of, yes. uh, here's the diversity numbers. I know that will satiate you. Don't pay attention to retention. When mm -hmm. in actuality, you, you have to do both. And, and that's also something I try to share. Anybody who's listening to this, who's worked with me knows that this comes out of my mouth all the time. You cannot do one without the other. You are, mm -hmm. you in my mind, you have effectively failed in your recruitment if you have not done retention with it. Uh, and so I think mm -hmm. that's a very powerful point you bring up there, Lexi. Okay, let's move on a little bit. Thank you for journeying us through your sort of early stages in life and even through college and, and your perceptions on DEI broadly and, and the university structure. Since graduating though, you've held a couple of positions in the workforce, um, which has given you a ton of experience in activism and advocacy to really add on to what you've already wonderfully done. Um, uh, and so I imagine though, that is through these journeys, and experiences that you sort of dubbed the moniker, like the Marxist feminist, right? Yes. <laughs> so talk to us about what that is. What does that mean to you? And, and what, is, what does that yeah. mean in general? Um, so, yeah. I mean, I always, I, so uh, in college, I like jokingly ran this communist meme page. So like, I would like joke <laughs> with that, you know, and like, oh, ha ha, these memes. Um, and I, I always identified as a socialist, but which it was not my main, um, I guess, like political identity or just, sure. I think politically more identify as queer and queer politics. Um, but once I became a full-time worker, that definitely shifted. Um, I was no longer experiencing things as a student, right, or as this or that within the institution, I was experiencing things directly as a worker. And that totally shifted or deepened my politics. Um, and also taking a step away from the university allowed me to really recollect what got me to where I was, right? So not even just in college, but a lot of it was my work experience, sure. um, trying to survive. And then really understanding capitalism in that way as well. So even in my in my college program, so very conservative, um, mm. pretty moderate. So any economics discussions were very 
not much what I was interested in. So I also had more time to be able to dive deep deeper into uh, economic theories, read more, um, explore more Marx or Marxism, like Marxist feminism. So right now I'm a I'm still reading, I started reading a different book, but Sylvia Federici, um, who has just really blown my mind. I love the way she writes and the way she thinks um, about particularly capitalism and women's roles in social reproduction um, of the workers. So those were things I was able to explore more. So I did a lot of campaign work particular. So my first job I was working, it was a, a four month contract, super short with Defender Future. It was like this, this program under the Environmental Defense Fund. Um, didn't really have that much support for the national. They also, it was super shady. Like we, we only got paid once a month and our first paychecks were two weeks late. So we wow. did like a month of work without being paid. And Gosh. this was fresh out of college. So I had like no income. I was like, I don't know how I'm going to pay my rent. Luckily I got my check in time finally. Uh, but like those those experiences um, of not having support from up above of this extreme hierarchy that you were a part of that functioned very differently from the university because the university is this major institution with with all kinds of departments. Right. So I was experiencing it at more of a micro scale, uh, which meant that for me, I was identifying more and more as a worker mm -hmm. and how not only I was being exploited, but other people. Um, I worked on a campaign for 13 months. Um, I completed out my contract, I should have quit, <laughs> but I wanted to stay with it to prove to myself that I could get through anything. Sure. It's very okay. toxic, <laughs> but um, I worked on a voter registration campaign. It, it, it paid well and it had health insurance, which was the other major thing yep. that I went through my undergrad without having health insurance too. Oh, wow. So having health insurance drastically changed my life as well. And that also made me think more and more about how much our own healthcare is based on our employment status, how we have this dependent relationship on our bosses because of that, and why leaving this toxic workplace was more difficult for me um, because I was finally able to access therapy. I was finally able to access um, medication, right? And actually take care of my health, visit the doctor, all these things I was never able to do. Right. And the thought of not being able to do those things was just, it was harmful in a lot yeah. of ways, right? To like suddenly stop going off medication. You can't put your body through that. Right. So it was another way that this um, abusive relationship was formed in the workplace dynamic in a way that I hadn't experienced as an undergrad. Sure. Um, definitely experienced exploitation and underpay uh, because the minimum wage and like the wage system overall sucks. But it was it was more in my everyday life, right? Because I was working full time. My full day was dedicated to this job right. and not, I have this class and then a different class and I have all these other different projects. It was very focused. So for me, I was able to then develop a new uh, analysis um, that is Marxist. <laughs> um, and more to the left and then really understanding what these things mean to me, naming my experiences and also understanding the relationships between white supremacy and capitalism in a much deeper way. Uh, because a lot of the times in undergrad and this also happens in DEI spaces, a system will be named, but it's not 
thoroughly explained, right? So we'll talk about intersectionality. They all link together and intersect and stuff, but we don't actually talk about how capitalism relies on white supremacy, how right. white supremacy relies on exploitation and keeping people in poverty and how class warfare is white supremacy, right? right. Really getting into the roots of these things and understanding past social movements such as the Black Panther Party. Um, I think a lot of it too is that we don't wanna talk about left economic systems such as socialism because in the United States, we've had a red scare, right? Globally, right. Changed, uh, when we yeah. look at the United States, has done hundreds of coups, especially in Latin America, whenever a socialist um, government gets elected in. So the United States overall is like very much anti-socialism, um, anti-whatever, like capitalism is the main thing, right? And when we look at the history of the United States too, through slavery, right? Like this exploitation, this dehumanization, all of these things play into right. each other. So yes. I was able to explore those in a much deeper way than the DEI office never would have been able to. Because right. I mean, we got shut down for trying to do social justice resource center. There's <laughs> no way name. the DEI <laughs> office would be able to have wow. this anti-capitalist yep. <laughs> like lesson plan available for people right yes yes entirely <laughs> so, agree yeah. Um, yeah so uh yeah i mean you know i worked on the campaign um while i was also on this voter registration campaign we were unionized as organizers so i became a union steward got involved in my union doing those things um and then started really learning more about unions because labor unions were not really ever talked about in my arizona education yeah. um and arizona is very anti-labor anti-worker um and then and what is was, if i might just really quickly while you're on the labor piece what for those who may or may not know or may have a a, a general understanding of it what is a a labor organizer what is a labor union what do you mean by this flesh that out just a little bit for folks who, who may yeah. not be too familiar so uh, when I was a union steward for our union, so our union, um, typically you have your group of workers, we all pay a collective amount of dues and those dues go to fund um, whatever it is for advocacy for ourselves. So we were, our headquarters were in California. So we were able to follow California labor laws. Um, I wasn't part of the bargaining process, so I joined afterwards but oftentimes with a labor union what we associate labor unions with are labor contracts so you're able to negotiate with the employer how much you get paid what your paid time off is sick leave child care right all of those good things that come with employment including your health care benefits so uh, labor unions oftentimes are there to advocate for the employee um human resources often advocates for the business, right? They exist to really protect the business. Maybe they'll help out in some things, but oh, they're yes, not necessarily true. there to advocate for the employee. This is true. That <laughs> <laughs> <How> much I know. <laughs> um, I think a lot of us have personal experience of HR not actually helping us out. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, so, so labor unions, even if we were to take a, a further look back, um, the labor movement as a whole was very much radical. Um, the eight hour work day that came from organizers, from workers who were on strikes, 
um, police were always antagonistic towards workers, still are very much. So when we look at this event um, called the Haymarket Massacre, I believe it was in the 1880s, around there. Um, but workers were striking, they were protesting, um, there were riots, right, because workers were being overworked, there were unsafe working conditions, um, and then the eight-hour workday was also being proposed, because this was the reform. Now we know eight hours a day, five days a week, like how many of us actually only work 40 hours a week, um, right. but also it's still too much, and right. you've probably seen the chart with like wages being low and then productivity going higher. So we right. are always being asked and made to produce more and more. More for less. Right. But during these Haymarket riots, the massacres, um, police killed a worker. They killed, there were I think seven anarchists who were also a part of this. They were hung by the state. So uh -huh. um, there was all this violence happening. And so the labor movement very much is rooted in the uh, going up against the capitalists, right? Going up against the state in many ways. So there's been a lot of repression. Um, labor unions now have really dwindled. So less people in the United States are part of a labor union than they were 50 years ago. And even if we compare to other countries, we have very small um, labor union uh, participation or membership overall. So, we can even look at the Chicano movement. So the United Farm Workers, right, they were fighting to have a labor union. Um, so like the labor movement is also intimately tied with the Chicano movements. Um, we could even look at like the Black Panther Party, how much also there was this economic analysis and like being working class. So- uh, I, I think about Dolores, Dolores Huerta. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Right. And I think a lot of the reason too why people are uneducated and unaware about labor unions and just working class politics is because working class politics unites everyone. That means white working class people, black working class people, disabled, right, et cetera. Um, and Fred Hampton is a great example. I just about to say that. <laughs> <laughs> right. And he was um, assassinated brutally, right, a by the police mm -hmm. at what, 23. I believe. 23, I believe, um, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. because he was getting together this interracial working class, and building solidarity. So in many ways, this solidarity is the threat. Um, and we know, you know, as people of color, as women, et cetera, that oftentimes inequalities are seen economically, right? right? Through exploitation of you having to do twice the amount of work as your white counterpart and getting paid less for it, right? Like it is embedded in these things. Um, so I was going off a little tangent, but labor unions, so uh, oftentimes there, there's this contract, right? You get to negotiate with the boss. So you enter a negotiation. Um, in Arizona, however, for public institutions, it is illegal to have a contract. You cannot negotiate. So uh, uh, while I was finishing up my election campaign, workers at the University of Arizona got together because there were these devastating furloughs that were happening yeah. that really targeted the people at the bottom, right? Mm -hmm. It was still hoarding wealth at the top. Uh, people were losing their jobs. They were getting pay cuts, unable to support their families, pay their bills, right? Meanwhile, the people at the very top were living as if nothing had changed. So eventually 
this coalition of um, campus workers got together and formed a labor union, United Campus Workers. Uh, and it was just in time I applied <laughs> and I was hired as an organizer because I had been a campus worker for four years. I intimately understood the university. Um, and a lot of what we had to do because we couldn't have a contract was trying to organize campaigns, um, trying to recruit people to join the union. And that was really tough to do during the, the pandemic. Um, I'm no longer organizing with them. Uh, part of it too is I, I'm very glad to be taking a step away from the university because the university drains you. <laughs> it just has this hold on you and it's hard right. to break out of it. Right. Um, right. But I, I'm very grateful for my time with the labor union because there were also people I was able to meet on campus that I wasn't able to form relationships with before. So for example, um, custodians on campus, predominantly Latina, get paid minimum wage. A lot of them have had to have different surgeries because of the manual labor that they're doing. They're asked to do more and more work because of the pandemic, but not getting paid the money for it. Um, so we see even in these other areas of campus, how whatever is happening in this one academic department is happening in this other department that has nothing to do with the other one. Sure. So we see just how systemic it all right. is. Right. Um, and I would say the other thing with DEI, um, and it's not necessarily the fault of DEI, it's again, how our institutions are built in the context of the United States as well. That when we look at who is making the least amount of money on a campus, what are the demographics? Who all is making minimum wage? And how many of them have to have a second job, right? And most of them are people of color. Mm -hmm. They're disabled people, they're older, right? They need the benefits and that's how they're able to, to be forced to stay because they desperately need their health insurance, right? right. And right. these abusive relationships are formed. And a lot of times people are kept away from each other. So we, we've seen very often through higher education and it just workplaces, these silos that exist to prevent workers from being able to talk to each other. Because if you find out that what's happening to you is also happening to this other person and you both are pissed off and you go into the boss together and then you pull in more people, right? Like you become a bigger threat than if you go in by yourself. Right. So the idea with labor yeah. unions then is to form this um, collective of the workers so that workers are not fighting individually, but rather together. Right. Um, and Makes sense. with paying dues, you then, you know, it takes resources to fight against a heavily resourced institution. Right. So that's where a lot of struggle comes in. So we see this class struggle in that way. Um, and oftentimes through class struggle, we see racial struggle, right? Because again, white supremacy and capitalism are leaked. They cannot be separated. No. Right, right. And that makes total sense. And I think that that is, it's an area of conversation that folks don't typically dig into, right? That the relationship between, as you mentioned a couple of times, race and class, or this idea of you know race oftentimes leads to class, if nothing else. Um, and I, in some ways, not always, um, I find that sometimes it gives white folks permission to. Some people might call it appropriate. Some folks might say the just the permission to uh, be a little more um, desensitized to elements of offense, let's just call it for lack of a better term, and resting on the this idea of, you know, like, you know, I'm from this area or 
I came up in this experience. So, you know, when I say this, these folks know I mean nothing by it because I'm not trying to be somebody I'm not. And it just takes me back to the, again, the W.E.B. Du Bois quote, you know, James Baldwin even said it, this idea of, you know, white folks can be broke, they can be indigent, they can be destitute, they can be in very bad shape financially in the U.S., but they can take comfort in knowing that at least they're not black here is what they would say. Right. So, you know, this idea of making it clear that yes, a lot of times conversations around race lead to class. And sometimes you do have pockets of white folks who are in, uh, in underrepresented spaces as well, class-wise, but let's not confuse this class privilege with, with, with white privilege because that's, you know, something right. that needs to be entirely examined differently mm -hmm. in the relationship to white supremacy. I, um, this is a fantastic interview thus far. Thank you again, Lexi, for being mm -hmm. here with me. I have a couple more questions for you. I want to change tone for this next question, and then I want to come back and have you close out one more time on your, on capitalism and, and share some more of your perspectives there. Okay. Um, so switching tone just a little bit, there's a narrative out there. I don't know if you've come across it. I know I have. I know uh, my wife has. Um, uh, among some folks, both left and right, both progressive, conservative, um, and issues that, that, that suggest that issues surrounding sexuality are convoluting, dare I say hindering, the progress of issues specifically faced by cisgendered women. In other words, that, that trans, non-binary, and other discussions of sexuality are moving cisgendered women into a majority category rather than a, a minoritized category uh, mm -hmm. effectively. And shifting the attention from the importance of like biological women's issues, right, to women with an X issues, and and taking away from some of the right, some of the work that may have been started in the past or uh, harkened back to in the seventies. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Is there grounds for an argument there? Is it misunderstood? Talk to me. Talk to us. Yeah, um, <laughs> I'm glad you asked this. So. These Have you conversations... heard that narrative? Okay. Oh, yes. Okay, sorry. Yes. Okay. These okay. conversations are nothing new. So um, I'll introduce you. I mean, I'm sure you've heard of them, but I'll introduce the audience into these terms. So TERF, which is T-E-R-F, trans exclusionary radical feminist, um, and also SWERF, so like sex worker exclusionary radical okay. feminist. I heard that one. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Swerf, I did a okay. bulletin board in our office once called SWERF and TERF. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, sure. Uh, if I find the picture, I'll send it to you. Send it um, in, yeah. <laughs> so the, these conversations are nothing new. Um, taking again, I had alluded to first wave feminism. So taking it back then, how women of color's issues could not be represented and white women's issues because it drew away from white women, right? Um, and so there's always whatever dominant woman identity in it who is fighting to remain dominant in that space, right? Because if we talk about the issues that a trans woman faces, that a poor sex worker faces, right? For example, then it somehow takes away from this issue that this upper-class woman is facing without tying together that there are ways that, let's say a woman who's working on Wall Street is facing sexual harassment by her coworkers, but works at Wall Street can still be creating the conditions that exist for a poor woman, for example. Yes. So it then separates like women as its own class that is somehow not related to all these other power dynamics. 
So I don't think that there is actual merit to say that talking about trans women and queer women and non-binary people, et cetera, somehow takes away from women because if we're not liberating those who are the most marginalized, who are facing the most horrendous conditions, then we're not actually liberating anything. So it goes back to um, what we talked about with um, DEI and the institution. If we're not actually changing how the system works, then we're just simply asking for representation. It's not actually changing these conditions that happen. freedom for a cisgender woman should not come at the expense of a transgender woman. And to reduce womanhood in this way also further legitimizes gender in the way that it's constructed and sees it as this very um, real scientific thing that exists and not as the social construct that it is that has very real consequences, of course, but that gender itself is a tool of patriarchy, is a tool of capitalism, is a tool of white supremacy to further enact exploitation and harm and dominance. Great answer. Yeah, yeah thank you. Yeah, I was I was excited to ask you that one actually. I was, you know, <laughs> I was, like, I was gonna prep you at first, but like, nah, I want the I want the raw authentic response. That oh was, yeah. Thank Just you for that. Water all over the <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, uh, last question, Lexi. Um, again, thank you for taking some time to hang with us today on the chopping block. Uh, we follow each other on social media, um, so I'm privileged enough to see your posts every every time I, you know, I'm on and, and they pop up and I, and I catch them in the stories. Uh, and you post a lot about capitalism, right? Imperialism. Um, mm-hmm. Some of these conversations just around the, the overall critique of just governance structure here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and the political machine. But I will say that you're also you're also pretty fair, right? And I don't want people to uh, just because of the course of this discussion has you leaning left. I want to make sure people know that you have no problem holding the left accountable as well. And I can right. I can vouch mm-hmm. for that. I've seen you critique Donald Trump and Ronald Reagan. I've seen you critique AOC most recently. Mm-hmm. I've seen you critique Obama in the past. Um, Two part question. Talk about why politics has become such a challenging place to be. And then talk about whether folks on the left and right actually share more similarities and differences and why that might be. Mm-hmm. So one thing I want, I want to also be explicit about is that in the United States, what we often know is the left and the right are oftentimes on the same side. Um, So when we talk about the left here in the United States, that might still very much be the right in another context elsewhere. And the reasoning for that, too, is because when we truly understand where our current political systems and economic systems come from, which, I mean, politics and economics are intertwined. They're not inherently separate systems. But when we look at how these things came to be, we have a better understanding of where political spectrums actually are now. So when we look at liberalism, for example, so the conservatives and liberals are both capitalists. They're both parties of capital, right? Liberalism formed out of, um, when we think of feudal society of monarchy and instead of worshiping the monarchs and the kings, we then move over to the nation state. Now the, the state has divine rule of the land, right? Um, 
and then out comes liberalism through those ways. So uh, there is this narrative that we see a lot that we are in very polarizing times. Um, and I think it's very interesting to hear that when it comes to American politics, because mm -hmm. they're not so polar. Um, what we say is the left is not actually very left. If anything, it's maybe moderate left, sure. right? Center left and not this extreme left that we think of. Um, mm. So I, I want to also name those things. Okay. Um, I think I think the United States is actually a very right-wing country and that any discussion to the left of it then gets cast as this very polar like polarizing thing and then there's all this discussion and then we keep saying we live in these polarizing times and why can't we all get along but not actually recognizing that we're actually more aligned than we not including me right. but, <laughs> right, right, but a lot of right. people are actually aligned there is still this investment in maintaining capitalism right yeah. we see um with conversations about palestine how the two-state solution is like this left progressive thing um, when in reality, a two-state solution is very moderate and does not actually address this colonial violence and genocide that happens, right? Mm -hmm. So then there are these ways that language that is progressive or very left then gets watered down, and then that watered-down version is the extreme. So we're constantly changing what is seen as extreme and what is not. Um, and we know extreme right-wingers are, you see more extreme right-wingers like on the road here in Arizona with their Blue Lives Matter flags, their like weird gun things about shooting people and all these weird things than you would about someone posting about being um, anti-capitalist, for example. Right. So right. I would even say that like the narratives that we have, um, if you're familiar with um, manufactured consent that's very much a part of it of mm. what we see as being these very um, contentious times have always existed the the political opposition here in the united states is not actually more extreme than it was let's say in the 60s right, right. um yep. and Agreed. again bringing it back to the black panther party people being assassinated um they were doing their liberation schools right like these these times um, and these political spectrums are nothing new, right. but we keep hearing repeatedly that we are in polarizing times now, we just need to work together, which is why we then see, you know, a politician like Joe Biden come in talking about wanting to work across the board, bringing the Democrats and Republicans together, but then deporting more people than Trump has, mm. um, turning away right? more asylum seekers. Wow. Yeah, I'm pretty sure, uh, well, he's using a policy from Trump sure. to allow him to deport people. Okay. So like so. we were seeing immigration wise, like nothing has changed. Yep. We actually received more stimulus money from Trump than from Biden. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so, so we see like this working across the aisle does nothing but maintain a status quo and allows us to then ease into like, oh, things are normal now. And like, this is fine, but these things should not be normal. We shouldn't, it should not be normal to constantly experience an economic collapse every so years because under capitalism, there will always be recessions. Um, there will always be disasters that happen. The pandemic is a perfect example of how right. capitalism is not structured to be sustainable, it is structured to constantly grow profit. Right. Even during something like 
a global pandemic, right. we're not producing the things that we need to stay safe, to keep people um, alive. We're still producing what is profitable instead. Right. Um, so right. our politics are not separate from those economic systems. So that's why I say that the, the left and right in the United States are very much still on the same side. Um, you don't see Democrats advocating for major wealth redistribution um, or even tackling how wealth is accumulated or banning uh, slave labor, or sweatshop labor internationally, right? We don't see those things. Um, it's always able to be a compromise um, when we talk about Palestine, right? Like there's always a compromise to say Israel has a right to exist, all these things, right? It turns into an anti-Semitic issue instead of what it really is, is the United States likes Israel because Israel is a watchdog in the Middle East where there is oil interest, right? And that is, it's aligned with capital, not right. with people. Um, so that's why I say that, um, the, the polarizing conversation that a lot of people have are, it's not actually polarizing the way that we think. And you don't know those things unless you really dig deep and read a lot right. and of course. explore alternative um, news outlets. I really highly recommend Democracy Now. Um, like NPR is okay sometimes, but Democracy Now, like every day for like an hour, hour 15, they do a great update about what's happening in the news domestically and worldwide mm -hmm. and like that's a, a great example of how like these alternative forms of information that's not like cnn or fox that still have capital interests mm -hmm. um the like the way we receive our information is filtered through american um exceptionalism and imperialism and just being indoctrinated into these American ideals that have always existed. You know, we had slavery, uh, we had segregation, right, right. Um, people not allowed to vote. And then when they do vote, it's like all these, the, the options you get for voting are like very much not what you actually want. We live in this two party system that doesn't make sense. And the two parties are more aligned than, than anything, but they play fight, right? Um, right. So, I, I care about this issue a lot. So no, good. <laughs> no, no. This that's why you're here. This is this is necessary, right? Drop in gems is Lexi Rosales. Lexi, thank you so much. That was it for us today on the chopping block. Before I let you go, how can people get in touch with you? Social media, uh, yeah, websites, I, anything like that. <laughs> um, I would definitely recommend social media for now. Um, my Instagram and Twitter handles are Lexi Ray Salas, so L-E-X-Y-R-E-Y-S-A-L-A-S. -E um, so you could follow me on there. Um, I'm trying to tweet more. Definitely, if you follow me on Instagram, you'll see all of the memes and uh, criticisms and whatever ideas that I have on my It's worth Instagram it, folks. Stories. It's worth it. Yeah. So no, you're not dancing yeah, on TikTok yet? No, I, I refuse to download TikTok because I don't need another thing to distract me from reading. <laughs> I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to take seriously, like I need to read because there's so much out there to read. Um, yeah, and then, the, yeah. you know, the same, the more you learn, the less you know. <laughs> right, right, right. That's right, how it yeah. feels. The more you learn about a subject, the more you're like, I have no idea. And there's all no these primary so texts. It's, it's overwhelming. <laughs> right. Well, thank you, Lexi, for taking the time to be with us today on the chopping block. Everybody out there, I'm Sherrod Robbins. This is Lexi Rail Salas.
and you're on the chopping block at visceralchange.org.